So if your Bibles are not already turned there, turn to John 18. Uh, what a dramatic passage that is. And as I said, uh, we left off two weeks ago in the Gospel of John, but our trajectory right now is to complete the Gospel of John by the end of the summer, but you don't get to the end of John without going through these incredible accounts of the trials against Christ and then his eventual crucifixion. So let me pray and uh, we'll get into this text. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is true and by it we are sanctified. God, that is the aim of what we do. That's the aim of why we preach, Lord, is to be sanctified by the truth. So I pray, Lord, that you would grip our hearts this morning, that you would uh, get a hold of our lives in whatever direction they may be going and draw us to yourself by the proclamation of your word. So God, we, we come, I pray, with humble hearts, ready to receive, with open minds to be taught of your word and to respond and obey in any way that you would see fit to draw us, Lord. And I ask this all uh, in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are in John 18, verse 28. And by way of introduction, uh, it occurred to me that what you believe about certain phrases or words in the Bible are usually going to dramatically alter the way you live your life. That sounds maybe like a given, but I'll give you just two examples that I'm not going to preach on, but that may radically affect how you live your life. Number one, does the Bible teach, does the New Testament teach that you receive eternal life based on the works that you do or by the works that Jesus did? Hint, it's the latter. But there are phrases in the New Testament that you might be confused by in their context and, and certain words that would suggest otherwise. Without deep study, you could potentially become confused. That would radically alter how you lived your life, wouldn't it? Very likely. Or at least it would radically alter how you felt about following Christ. There's one of a little bit less urgency, but no less importance. This verse might be familiar to it, might not be, but what did Paul mean when he asked and demanded that a woman cover her head while she prays or prophesies in the assembly? What does that mean? What do you believe about that phrase? That will radically alter how you worship and how you come together with other believers. Now, let's move on before I preach an entirely different sermon than what I meant to. But that's to illustrate that there are phrases in the Bible that we must wrestle with. We must come to terms with what they mean. And so this morning, we ask the same question that Pilate asked of Jesus Christ. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? So what would it mean if Jesus had just answered a simple yes? Yes, I am, as you say. You notice in the text there that he asks him twice. Both times, Jesus does not directly answer the question. What's up with that? He's not a politician. That's not why he's not answering the question. He has other reasons for that. Where would it leave Gentiles who come to Christ? And what would it mean if Jesus wasn't just a great teacher or savior to the world, or to, to, the, to the Jews, but also the king of his creation. What would that mean if he wasn't just a personal savior, but the king of all creation, the king of the whole world? 
And so this is why I think Jesus avoids a simple yes answer. He really expands the definition of what Pilate is unknowingly asking him. So the context of our passage, again, if it's your first time with us, we've been going through sequentially through the Gospel of John. And for many of us, this is <clears throat> we know exactly where we are on the timeline. But if this is your first time here or you haven't heard in a while, I just want to remind you that the sun has just risen, the S-U-N, the sun in the sky has just risen, just came over the hills in Jerusalem. On April 7th, the year was 30 AD, probably. Jesus has just been bound by Jewish authorities, and they've led him from the court of the high priest, who is kind of the Jewish uh, leader of the judicial system at that time, he, he, like a judge kind of. And he was before the Sanhedrin, which was 70 elders in Israel. He just passed through their court who found him guilty. And so they bound him and they led him into the court of the Roman prefect, Pontius Pilate. So you can see what's kind of happening here. He's moving from court to court. He had spent the previous, previous evening uh, hour, spending hours in prayer in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the oil press. That's what the word Gethsemane means. A mob of authorities had come from Israel and Rome together, and they descended on the garden with weapons and torches in order to arrest Jesus secretly so that they could eliminate him. They didn't like the way he had challenged their authorities. They didn't like the way people were following him, and they wanted to eliminate him because they thought that that would provide security for geopolitical Israel. It wouldn't be torn apart by this uh, teacher named Jesus. All of his disciples fled from the garden except two, at least two that we know of. Both followed him from a distance back into the city. But even one of those who stayed with him and followed him denied him three times, even before a servant girl. That disciple's name was Peter. The Jewish trial was completed by night. So they took him in and under the cover of darkness and they tried him. They examined him. They asked him questions. And the high priest Caiaphas found him guilty of blasphemy and charged him under Jewish law with the crime of blasphemy, which according to Leviticus 24 was punishable by death. Christ was sentenced because of his claim that he would go on from that time to rule at the right hand of God. He said this in the Gospel of Luke. He said before the high priest, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. That was the claim that the high priest seized on, tore his robes, and said, I don't need to hear any more. This is blasphemy. Now, why is it blasphemy? Because earlier in, in John, I think it was John chapter 6, uh, Jesus said, why are you going to stone me? Because I was doing these good works. And they said, we're not going to stone you for your good works. We're going to stone you because you being a mere man, make yourself out to be God. That's blasphemy. If a mere man were to say, I am like God, this is blasphemous because God, there's no way can be contained in the body of a man. And I mean, imagine somebody, imagine your husband or your wife saying, I am the closest thing that you would know to see God. It's blasphemy to say that God could ever be represented. And this is why it was a reasonable charge unless, unless God had promised to come as a man Psalm 110.1 says that 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. There's kind of a, a, a bit of a, a picture there of two parts of the Trinity reigning side by side. This perfectly fits with the image of Christ. The Messianic prophecy that we find in Isaiah chapter 9 says that a child will be born, which is a human, right? A child will be born. We recognize that in human terms. And his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So even embedded in the Old Testament, there were prophecies of the Messiah that showed that the nature and character of God would be wrapped up in the body of a man. And so the Jews obviously missed this or they just could not handle it. They could not handle a man coming among them and having the authority of God. And so the Jewish law demanded that blasphemy be punished by stoning to death. That's in Leviticus 24, 16. And so they condemn Jesus to death and they bind him up and they send him on to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman prefect. So the focus of this text comes to be the kingdom that belongs to Christ. The kingdom that belongs to Christ. That becomes the focal point of this text. And so my outline goes as follows. My first point is, under the heading, two small kingdoms. Two small kingdoms. Then our text goes on to show us one king. Then our text goes on to the rejection of Christ under the heading, not this man, as Karen read for us. Not this man, but Barabbas. So those are my headings, and let's, let's get into the text. It says that they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas in verse 28 to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside and said to them, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they kind of sarcastically replied, look, we wouldn't bring him to you if he were not a criminal. We wouldn't be wasting your time, Pilate, if we hadn't already found him guilty. We're not just messing around here. Remember, it's early in the morning. It says we would not have delivered him over. And then Pilate says, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So what's happening here? You have two small kingdoms in play here. Two small kingdoms. You have Israel and you have Rome interacting with each other. Right here, you have a diminished expression of the kingdom of Israel. A diminished expression. Why do I say that? Because Israel was once a sovereign nation. Israel was once a nation with a king who had their own land, their own laws, their own borders, their own protections, their own sovereignty. They could deal with matters however they saw fit as the Lord had directed them. <clears throat> and yet now here they are, they're ruled over by a Roman empire who has put in charge over certain areas what they called client kings. This is like if you have a giant empire and there are certain areas that you're not that interested in in terms of governing, you can set up like a junior king to just take care of it. And as long as he doesn't step out of line, you can leave him in charge. And that was King Herod. If you remember back to the beginning of the Gospels, King Herod uh, was furious when the wise men tricked him about where Jesus was and he retaliated by killing all the children, all the male boys under the age of two. That would be a massacre even in our own church, wouldn't it? So Herod was furious and he slashed down every boy who could possibly challenge his claim to being king. 
he already knew it was a fragile throne because the Romans could toss him anytime they didn't think he was doing a good job. So Herod was at that time a client king over Jerusalem, over the Jews, over the wider area, uh, Bethany and Galilee and Nazareth and this whole surrounding area. So the fact was that Rome didn't allow Israel their own sovereignty, although Israel was still a nation within a nation. It was still a distinct nation, much like we have today. I mean, we have, an, we have Israel that's very ethnically distinct. They are still Jewish by blood. And at this time, the Jews had not mixed too much or they were still their own people, but it was diminished. And so Herod had died, King Herod, the client king, and in his place did not rise up another king, but tetrarchs. Tetrarchs were like mini governors in certain areas and their power was much more divided and it wasn't like a king. And so that's what's happening in the life contemporary to Jesus right now. And so there was a Roman governor set up named Pontius Pilate. He was set up by the Romans in order to say, hey, and he wasn't always there, but the Romans set him up to say, you need to make sure that these people don't get out of line. We don't mind if they practice their religion. We don't mind if they have their own way of life, their own tradition and their worship in their temple. But if they ever get out of line, Pilate, it's your neck. So that's how the Roman Empire dealt with places like Jerusalem and the Jews. But since they needed Pilate to carry out the sentence, they brought him Jesus to Pilate. Now, why was this? They said it is not lawful for us to execute a prisoner. Why is that? Well, if you're Rome and you're trying to deal with a nation to try to keep them in line, you're probably going to eliminate certain freedoms from their jurisdiction. You can practice your judicial code, but if anyone is guilty of death, hand them over to us. We will handle that. We will be the executioners for this land. It's not going to be just you execute whoever you think is right. The Romans are trying to keep a handle and a lid on things, okay? And so they carry him over and they say, it's not lawful for us to execute him. And this fulfills the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, we know that Jesus died on a cross, right? But that's not how, it's not the only way it could have gone. Jews, when they executed somebody, was done by stoning. They would throw stones until the person was dead. Why didn't Jesus die if he was among the Jews? Why wasn't he executed by stoning? Well, the Old Testament says in Psalm 22 that they pierced my hands and my feet. The Old Testament from thousands of years before had said Jesus would die by having his hands and his feet pierced, not by stoning. And so this political situation that's going on here is perfectly ordained by God that the Old Testament would be fulfilled But check this out. They go to Pilate and they don't enter his headquarters so that they would not be defiled. We have two kingdoms and their borders are coming very close in touch here. And the rulers bring Jesus and they say, well, we can't bring him inside the Gentile headquarters because that would defile us. Does anybody see any irony here? They want to continue to be able to eat the Passover. They had already purified themselves and they knew by their law that if they entered the Gentile household, they would be unclean. And then they wouldn't be able to partake of the Passover meal, the lamb that was slaughtered, and that they would roast and eat together. They wanted to partake of that meal, so they did not enter Pilate's headquarters. 
You have one nation trying to maintain its purity, trying to maintain its position, coming up against the Gentile community and saying, we can't interact with you or we will lose our community identity. We will lose our sovereignty. We will lose our purity. We have to remain distinct. We have to remain distinct, thought the Jews as they brought Jesus to Pilate to crucify him. And so we see these two kingdoms coming in contact with with one another. But what else do we notice? It says that Pilate went back into his headquarters and he called out to Jesus. So Jesus was actually inside. Jesus was actually inside the Gentile headquarters where the Jewish leaders would not go because it would defile them. Christ was inside the Gentile household. So Matthew 20, 17, it perfectly fulfills Jesus. That's his most kind of complete description of what was going to happen. I just want to read that to you so that you know what he was expecting and how it's being perfectly fulfilled. Matthew 20, verse 17 says this. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, and he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes by Judas Iscariot, and they will condemn him to death. He knew that he would be found guilty even though he was perfect. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. So they knew that the Jews would try him first, then hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Roman execution. Jesus had perfectly described this and he will be raised on the third day. As I said, Psalm twenty-two sixteen says, they will pierce his hands and his feet. This is the symbol and the vision of the Messiah. And so we have these two kingdoms. We have these two kingdoms um, kind of arguing over whose job it is to take care of Jesus. Our next heading is one king because under this heading we see Jesus examined. Pilate returns to Christ, who's in the headquarters, and he asks him a pointed question. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Now Jesus points out here verbally what we notice in the text. Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Because Pilate didn't hear that from the Jews, did he? Look back in your text. Does it say that he said that anywhere? Pilate went outside and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answer, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So he didn't hear it from the Jews, at least not then. But that's the question he chooses to ask Jesus. Why wasn't the first question he asked, what, what crime, like they won't tell me, why don't you tell me what charge? I mean, this is, it's kind of a gong show. You don't even have them inside the court to charge the prisoner, right? If you showed up at court and your accuser didn't show up, you get to leave. If you have a parking ticket and the cop doesn't show up, then you get to leave. The ticket's thrown out. And here the Jews don't even come in to charge Jesus officially before Pilate. They just say, he's guilty. Take care of him. But he asks, are you the king of the Jews? Why is this a relevant question? Well, I think number one, I mean, it had been said of Christ, maybe that he was the king, or maybe it was a, an insight of Pilate's. But the point was, I think Pilate wanted to be a little extra sure and giving serious consideration to the fact that he might be about to execute a king. That would be problematic, wouldn't it? wouldn't it? If you were supposed to be ruling over a nation and their king was accidentally or unjustly executed. This is an act of war. So Pilate, I think, is just covering his ground a little bit here. He wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? 
because I've been asked to crucify you. So who are you? Are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? This is the pivotal question. This is the seminal question for the identity of who Jesus Christ is because it opens up to us his description of himself and a kingdom. Now, instead of answering the question clearly or at least directly, he does this because I think he understands that Pilate doesn't understand the significance of the Jewish expectations of their Messiah. Pilate didn't have the Jewish scriptures, right? He wasn't like, uh, an altar boy in, in, at, at the foot of a rabbi memorizing scripture. He didn't know. He didn't know what the Jewish expectations of the Messiah were. So are you the king of the Jews or not? Do you, are you going to wear a crown and sit on a throne? Are you going to be like me? Are you going to be like the emperor? Like I need to know who I'm executing. Are you royalty? And so Jesus recognizes that Pilate and him are not going to really be speaking in the same categories. So he doesn't answer him according to the category that he presented, which was, are you the royal king who will sit in Jerusalem on a throne? That's what he's asking. If you're the king of the Jews, then in the capital, you will have a throne. Is that you? And so if Jesus is going to answer according to his categories, it's actually going to compromise his identity. If Jesus identifies himself in categories that are too small for who he is, then it will compromise the identity of the Messiah. And it will not do justice to the claims of the Old Testament. So he describes his kingdom instead. The Jews, I want to emphasize, the Jews expected political freedom. The, the disciples made that clear. Uh, G, Lord, when are you going to overthrow the Romans? Uh, when are you going to mount the insurrection? When are you going to sit on your throne? When are you going to throw off this opposition? They were ready for political freedom. Political autonomy. And you can see that because they were uh, ruled over by Rome. They knew this is not what God designed. God didn't design us to be a mighty nation, to be ruled over by a Gentile nation. Can you just think of the scandal of that? These are the people of God, supposed to be the light of the world. And they're under Gentile rule, pagan rule. And so they're, they're desperately awaiting the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. You have to think that Jewish women for centuries, knowing that the Messiah would be born from the womb of a maiden or a virgin, would be thinking, is this child the Messiah? Is this the child who's going to lead us to freedom finally? And then it's no surprise that when the angel comes to Mary, she treasured these things in her heart because she was the one that God chose to deliver the Messiah to the Jews. And so he describes his kingdom instead. The Old Testament uses geopolitical terms to describe uh, this Messiah, and, and, and it's interpreted as being politically free. But what we see is that that definition would actually limit Christ to being the mere king of a small group of people, which Christ had no intention of becoming. And his, the kingdom description hints at this claim. So he answers him, my kingdom is not of this world. So you can see there, he distinguishes categories. <clears throat> Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? He's asking in an earthly category. Are you going to rule from Jerusalem? Jesus says, you're thinking in the wrong categories. My kingdom is not, not from this world. So for me to set up a throne in Jerusalem would deny the divine nature of my kingdom, the heavenly origin of my kingdom. It would be material. It's a kingdom that's not derived from the soil or the principles of man. It does not come up from the earth. 
It comes down out of heaven. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. We actually see earlier in the gospel that Jesus at one point knew that the people were about to take him by force and make him king. They're like, this is our guy. We're going to throw him on the throne. He's going to be our king. And what does it say about Jesus at that point? He fled. He fled because he knew they were going to make him king. Not because it wasn't the right time or not because, you know, they didn't have the right size robe fit for him. He said he fled. It says he fled because he knew they were going to make him king and he would not be enthroned by man because man can dethrone anybody that they enthrone. And Jesus does not have a kingdom that belongs to this world. Remember when the disciples asked, how should we pray? And Jesus said, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, if you want to know how you should pray for the earth, pray that the earth would become like heaven. Because heaven has a kingdom and it is coming down to earth and you ought to pray that it would come increasingly. So because of that, being captured and killed does not diminish his claim to a throne, but it actually solidifies his claim. And I just want to read to you from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this earth, then my disciples would fight. They would fight, right? Doesn't that make sense? If you know that you have the king and he's in enemy headquarters, you're going to bust in there, bring him out, and you're going to enthrone him. If your kingdom is a worldly kingdom, that's what needs to happen. If you're executed, then that's game over. But Jesus says, being killed by you is not going to diminish my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. That's why my servants don't need to fight. That's why it doesn't matter that they have all fled. Do you see that? And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, listen to this. And being found in human form, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at verse 9. Therefore, meaning because of that, God exalted him, highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, just some knees will bow, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, because he humbled himself to death, God has highly exalted him. What did Jesus say in the trial again, um, before Caiaphas? From now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Christ knew that because of his humility and his death, he would be exalted by God to the right hand of the throne. He knew that he would rule over his kingdom because of his death. So Jesus steers widely clear of ever being confused as a king of an earthly kingdom. It's a kingdom that's not from earth, although it is in earth. It is around us, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Now, I just want to show you that the Jews had expectations. We can't fault them because they had expectations. They had long expectations of a king specifically who would come along the bloodline of their best ever king. Does anybody know the best ever king that Israel ever had? King David. King David. He was their best king. 
And King David received a promise from the Lord that his throne would be eternal, that he would raise up somebody from David's lineage, would give him a throne, and that throne would never go away. It would never perish. He would always have somebody to sit on it. That's an eternal kingdom. I bet you every royal family on earth right now wishes that they could have that, especially in an era where faith in monarchies is diminishing. People aren't so excited about the monarchy as they used to be. And the monarchy's sitting there going, how long are they going to tolerate us? How long are they going to tolerate $50 million weddings while people suffer in the streets? So monarchies are trembling. David receives a promise from the Lord that his throne would never be toppled. It would never lack somebody to sit on it. That is security. 2 Samuel 7, I want to just read that for you because we have to know why was this so important to them. And there's a promise that was, uh, that was made to David and they have never forgotten it and had been inscripturated. They had memorized it. They knew about it. They were waiting for it. This was Israel's hope. 2 Samuel chapter, 17, um, chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 11 to 14. From that time, I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares uh, that to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down to your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And there's parts of this prophecy that are limited to an immediate fulfillment in King Solomon. Uh, When he commits sin, I will chastise him. This has an immediate application because the son of David was Solomon who built the temple. But we also know that the son of David was Jesus who built a spiritual temple who is us so that his spirit could dwell in us. But it says, and and your house shall be a kingdom, shall be your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me, before God. Your throne shall be established forever. In all of these words, in all accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This was the promise to David that they were clinging to and waiting for. When is this king going to come up from David and establish his throne forever? Well, we know that Mary, Jesus' own mother, was from the lineage of David. And we know that uh, Joseph, Jesus' own earthly father, was also from the line of David. So there was no question that Jesus was of royal blood, but that his kingdom would not be like David's kingdom. It would not even be like Solomon's kingdom in all of its splendor. It would be a kingdom that would last forever. And it would spread and cover the whole earth much farther than the old kingdoms had gone. Christ isn't laying a claim to a throne that is subject to treaties or challenge or political fads, but a kingdom that he says comes from heaven. And so there's a reality that Jesus is the king. But what does that look like? And we need to look into the text to see that. Are you a king? So he describes his kingdom and Pilate clues in. Well, anybody who's got a kingdom must be a king, right? So he says, hi, you kind of answered even though you didn't want to. Because he says, are you a king? And Jesus says, well, my kingdom is not of this earth. So Pilate says, ah, you are a king, aren't you? So Pilate picks up on this. And Jesus, again, he illustrates the nature of his kingdom as being so far different than anything Pilate can ever imagine. Jesus demonstrated all along in his earthly ministry, what following him would be like and how it was attached to the kingdom of God. Jesus' first miracle that John records for us 
was that he turned water into wine. Is that because he wanted to make sure that all the guests went home pretty drunk? No, it wasn't, although that may have happened. The point was what Jesus was showing was that what he was doing was a precursor to the onset of the kingdom. He was turning water into wine. And we know that even in the Old Testament, in Joel chapter 3, it says that the mountains will drip sweet wine. The realities of the kingdom of God will be characterized by peace, by honey and curd, okay, by fig trees that were full of fruit, by the mountains dripping sweet wine instead of brooks of water. Jesus was demonstrating, my work is to bring about the kingdom of God. And he demonstrated that in his miracles. And so Jesus answers him, you say that I am a king. Whatever you think about me being a king is for you to think. But listen to this. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What's that claim about? What's that claim about? He describes his purpose. And again, Pilate saying you are a king does not get at the purposes for which Jesus knows he was called for. A king may or may not accomplish these things. A king was called to rule in righteousness and justice, to give justice to the poor, to govern wisely. This is why the Proverbs say, don't give strong drink to a king because he has very important responsibilities. And so Pilate would have recognized that. But what does Jesus say about his purpose? It's not just to bring justice in civil cases. He says, my purpose was to come and testify about the truth. Well, what is that truth? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make this very clear at the beginning of their Gospels. What is the central truth that Jesus was testifying? That's hard. And I don't say this lightly, but what I believe the central claim that Christ made, and he made it at the beginning of his ministry, was that the kingdom is coming. Everything he taught and did supported that claim. There is a kingdom coming. Even John the Baptist, when he said, repent um, and believe. Now he said the mountains would have to be brought low and the valleys would have to be brought up to make straight the way of the king. John's ministry was even to prepare the coming of the kingdom. His was a, a picture of physical preparation that you would fix roads and waterways and bridges to make sure that there was a straight path for the kingdom to come. And that path was paved with repentance. Repent of your pride. Repent of your sin. Make straight the way of the Lord. That's how the kingdom of God advances. Not through physical conquest of mountains being pushed out of the way, but on the paved road of repentance. That's what John preached. This is how you prepare yourself for the king. You repent of your sin because he's a king of righteousness. He's not a king who will overlook your sin. He's not a king who will deal lightly with it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make this claim very early on that the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the truth to which Jesus came to testify and he proved it and supported it in everything that he did. Luke records that Jesus came and gave sight to the blind. He healed the sick and the lame, which was a sign that the kingdom was coming from the, the book of Isaiah. 
there was a a prophecy about a chosen one who would come and would do all these things and he would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus read that passage, he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He said, I am the one of whom this passage speaks. I am the one bringing sight to the blind and making the lame walk again, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Why is it the year of the Lord's favor? Because he's calling us to repentance right now. He gives us time. There is a time where he comes back to judge. But the first time he came, he came to deal with sin, Hebrews teaches us. The next time he comes, he's not dealing with sin. He's coming to bring the kingdom in its entirety and he will destroy his enemies who have not kissed his feet, as Psalm chapter 2 says. Kiss the son lest he rebuke you and be angry, angry with you. The coming of the kingdom in its entirety will come at the second coming of Christ. But it's the year of the Lord's favor now because the king is not destroying his enemies right now. Isn't that true? Why is there evil in the world? Why do we suffer? Why are there people getting away with such things? Because it is the year of the Lord's favor. He is giving time. Peter says, hey, don't think that God is slow to fulfill his promises because his patience is favor to you. It's salvation to you. The fact that you have another day to live and to contemplate your reality and to contemplate Jesus Christ is salvation for you. It's right there and you can take a hold of it if you have time. The year of the Lord's favor is patience. It's patience. So he's here to testify of the truth. Now what does he say? Everyone who listens to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to to my voice. Jesus already made this point in the negative when he said in John chapter 8, you do not listen to me because you are of your father, the devil, and you listen to him. Wow. So those who don't hear and understand and believe the word of Christ are not of the truth. This is, it helps explain why would they hand over Jesus? Because they weren't of the truth. They couldn't receive his truth. Because they wanted to be king, just in the way that Satan told Adam and Eve, you will be like gods when you eat of this fruit. The, the, the rulers of Israel could not stand the fact that they were not to be gods in their own little kingdom. And so they rejected the truth of Christ, and they handed him over to be crucified. So he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And we're going to sing in the last instance of this morning's service that he knows my name. He, he hears me when I call. And there's this imagery of the shepherd calling his sheep and the sheep hearing his voice. And this has been pervasive throughout John as well. That the sheep listen when they hear the voice of Jesus Christ. They just come because they know the shepherd. And Jesus makes this claim that everybody who the, who the father gives Christ, they will come because they hear the word and they listen and they follow Christ. And it's regarding the truth. It's regarding the truth. And Pilate, he responds by saying, what is truth? What is truth? And you'd think, wouldn't that be a great moment for Jesus to be like, okay, that's a great question. Let's sit down and describe the truth. But for one, Jesus said, I am the truth. And number two, I think that what John is demonstrating here is that Pilate, I think, is cynical toward his own kingdom, toward his own rulership. Why? Because the Roman Empire was obsessed with pragmatism in a way. They had, a, they had an empire that was gigantic that, that they had to maintain. We know that the Romans uh, 
facilitated or at least tolerated a wide plurality of religions. They did not enforce a state religion. They gave you freedom to kind of worship in whatever way you wanted to, um, provided that you confessed Caesar as Lord. That's why the confession Jesus as Lord um, was so important to the early church, because it was a defiance uh, against Caesar being Lord, and it was Christ being Lord. But the point was, what kingdom am I standing for? I wonder if that's what Pilate thought. What is truth? I mean, they had an empire, but they had no claim to truth. They tolerated every religion just so that their kingdom could hold together. That was Rome's strategy. Let's make sure there's a king here and here and here and here. It doesn't matter what people are doing as long as they're not out of line and we can claim them as our kingdom. Pilate said, what is truth? It's almost a cynical way of saying, like, you think that'll work? You're going to build your kingdom based on some vague concept of truth? How is truth going to be your model? Jesus, you, you want to be a king? Let me tell you, uh, that's not going to work. You can't just impose, impose truth on people or say, I'm governing according to truth. And this got me thinking, there are really, now forgive me if this is an oversimplification, but there's really kind of two governments in the world. One is totalitarian. One is that the, the, a certain group of people have total control over the people. These are governments that think there is nothing higher than them. There is no God controlling them. This is a government that just uh, enforces and controls and submits the people to themselves. It operates as if there were no God. The other is sort of some version of democratic or republican or whatever. This operates with modes of mitigating and, and controls on power. In the United States, you have the Senate, you have Congress, and you have the White House. You have these three forms of government. And in Canada, we have Parliament, and we have the Senate, and we have the Prime Minister's office. We have these different layers of power in order to make sure that not too much power is given to one area. Why? It's to mitigate the sinful effects of man. The framers of the Constitution in the United States were much more explicit than Canadians, although it's debatable either way whether they were real believers or not, but they did believe that man was inherently sinful and that if he was going to rule over a large population, he needed to have built-in checks to make sure that his sin did not get out of control. Aren't you thankful for that right now, especially in the States and in Canada? Okay, there's problems with leadership that is out of control and thinks that they can govern without reference to God. But what does Christ say? I came to testify of the truth. Christ's kingdom is an absolute monarchy. There is no democratic function in the kingdom of God. Christ rules absolutely without apology. But you know what? He does it in absolute truth. He doesn't need checks and balances because he governs uh, with care and love and he shepherds his people. In the Old Testament, the symbol of the shepherd and the king almost always went together. The best king was a shepherd. It's no coincidence that Christ came and revealed himself as a shepherd. He saw his people and they were like sheep without a shepherd. And yet he's also the king Christ's kingdom is entirely embodied. It's the, it's the total embodiment of, of truth, period. This is why a so-called earthly kingdom just doesn't make sense. Christ is not going to rule over a kingdom that's pseudo almost sort of like his heavenly kingdom. His kingdom is going to be perfect. It's going to be without sin, without tears, without um, rebellion of any kind. And he says, people who hear, who are of the truth, they listen to my voice. 
He's saying, I don't need to get up and wave my purple robes around to be king. When I speak, my people listen. That's what my kingship is like. That's what I'm like as a king. People come to me who are of the truth. There is no rebellion. And so what do they say? Paul says, what is truth? And then he goes on in verse 38b. He says, uh, after he had said this, he's, Pilate's kind of done. He's like, I don't know if I really understand this. All right, what Jesus is teaching is really for our sake. He went back outside to the Jews who are waiting outside, and then he says, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? He doesn't even give them two options. He's like, well, he's not guilty. Pilate has examined him, found him not guilty. That's pretty telling. He's just been exonerated in the highest court in the land. I find no guilt in him. But he had this uh, kind of deal with the Jews as a sign of good faith, as a sign of partnership. I'll release one man every Passover. One, one prisoner gets to go back into his daily life. And so he says, well, this is kind of a no-brainer. Should I release the king of the Jews? And he calls him the king of the Jews again. Man, is Pilate ever... He doesn't understand these people. He's like, why is he here? He has done nothing wrong. And we know from the other gospels that his wife has a terrible dream and says, Pilate, you should have nothing to do with this guy. Pilate is in so far over his head. He wants nothing to do with him. He says, as far as I can tell, he's your king. Do you want him back? Come on. He's handing it to them. And what do the Jews say? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. John, in an understatement, says Barabbas was a robber. Jesus, who has done nothing wrong, is before them. And Barabbas was a robber. And they wanted Barabbas back. So Pilate found no guilt in Christ, and they choose Barabbas instead. Other uh, gospels tell us that he was a zealot, kind of like a terrorist. He was an insurrectionist, a rebel, uh, um, um, a leader of rebellion against authority. The word rebel actually means, from the Latin, it's two words, re and bello, which means I renew war. This is what the Jews actually wanted. They wanted a war. They wanted a rebellion against Rome. They wanted action. They wanted conquest and violence. That's how they thought their kingdom was going to come. And so they say, yeah, give us Barabbas. At least he'll fight. So they choose Barabbas. What the Jews wanted was not someone whose kingdom was recognizable only to those who have repented. They wanted a kingdom that validated their own claims to authority, that put them higher up, that gave them more power. Jesus said, I'm bringing a kingdom where the last will be first and the first will be last. I'm bringing a kingdom that you have to repent to get into. Not very interesting to the rulers of a kingdom that wanted to grow, is it? Don't miss the substitution either. Jesus gets condemned while Barabbas gets released. We are Barabbas. We are the filthy sinners who want our own way, who get released because Jesus gets held. That's our story. We're the one who, de who deserved absolutely nothing and who went free because Christ was condemned. That's how this passage ends in chapter 18. So we conclude with a couple thoughts. 
Number one is that John is making clear and plain that the kingdom over which Christ will rule isn't comprised of one single little nation or with earthly borders, but he lays a universal claim to every sphere of life. My kingdom is of the truth. I came to testify of the truth. His kingdom is universal. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as water covers the sea, which reminds me a lot of the great commission that Jesus left his disciples with to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe and obey all that I have commanded. And so we need to grasp this as we share the gospel. Sometimes I think we're guilty of truncating and shrinking the gospel down to this little, well, Jesus can help you with your marriage. Jesus can help you find a job. He can give you meaning. All of these things may be true, but do we preach that the kingdom is coming and that the king is coming back and we need to be prepared to meet him in glory through repentance? Because when he comes back, he's going to renew all things. He's going to make all things new. He will rule over an eternal kingdom that has no end, where there are no tears, there, are no, there is no violence. His kingdom is going to be righteous forever. We preach the coming of a king who is going to destroy his enemies. Make no mistake. Peter makes that very clear in his two letters that his enemies will be destroyed. We don't preach a mere personal king who's just Lord only of my life. His authority is not limited to me and you and just those who have accepted him as as, as the king. His rule is over the whole world. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he reigns now, right now, he is reigning until every enemy is made his footstool. All things are being subjected to Christ until a time when everything is subjected and he will hand that kingdom over to God the Father. Just as Philippians 2 said, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that as Corinthians says, um, God may be all in all. That he may be the center of everything when it's all said and done. As subjects of this kingdom and as followers of Christ, we do not require permission to speak his authority over all the earth. He said, go and make disciples. All authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. Jesus said, all authority is mine. Therefore, you can go and make disciples because I have authority over every nation. They belong to me, says Christ. Now go and subdue them through the teaching of the gospel. Jesus, when he was riding into Jerusalem, people were calling out, Hail the King of Israel. They called him the King of Israel. And the Pharisees said, Hey, rebuke your disciples. Make them be quiet. And Jesus said, If they fall silent, even the rocks will cry out. There is no limit to the authority and glory of Jesus Christ. And it falls to us to declare and proclaim this message. And we ought to do it fearlessly. Not rudely, but fearlessly because we are all rebels making war against God. It started with Adam and Eve, and it persists in you and me. We need peace. We need the end of the war. Christ makes that peace between us and God on the cross. So let us fearlessly and lovingly declare the reign of Jesus Christ to all men and women who in our town and in your town are like sheep without a shepherd. They need a king, they need a shepherd, and we can tell them about him. 
And so I leave us with that commission and that charge, and I will uh, pray, and Dave will lead us in a final song. Let's pray.